Back to the Management Lab. I'm Sean Hansen from Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology. And I'm Uri Gull from the University of Sydney Business School. Hi, Sean. Hi, Uri. How's it going? I am doing all right. How are you? I'm fading in and out on our uh, video feed here. I'm sorry. You'll just have to assume when I say something snarky, I'm smirking at you. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I can I can manage that. Yeah. Uh, anything new? Not really. Um, I guess everybody's been caught up in the whirlwind or the unfolding drama with OpenAI in the last, what is it now, day and a half or something like that. Um, have you been, I guess, yeah. The long? question is, is it unfolding, right? Like, the, the uh, and given our discussions of AI, this is kind of an interesting topic and actually it feeds into what we're going to discuss today. But, I mean, it seems like I'm totally in the dark as far as what the driver was. The The board claimed that he was... That uh, this was the over the weekend, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, was ousted by the board, their board of trustees, and the the claim given or the reason stated was he was less than forthcoming. Um, uh, I'm I'm looking for the exact quote here. Sorry, um, it was inconsistently um, honest or dishonest or something along these lines. So the quote I see is not consistently candid in his communications, yeah. which is quite cryptic. Um, and it seems like it, not based on what I'm reading today, they're they're negotiating to have him possibly return. Yeah. Um, so and and it sounds like that desire for his return was a very much a bottom up thing where several members of the organization and investors threatened to basically withdraw their investment if if altman wasn't uh restored to the i think it's more than several employees it was like 700 out of 750 or something so it's the vast majority of, of the employees at the company at OpenAI that signed this open letter saying that they would resign if he wasn't reinstated which is pretty wild right like usually i i would expect almost i would not be surprised at a story that worked in the exact opposite direction right where if it's person was ousted and then you find out that that a vast majority think he was toxic or something like that you know creating a toxic work environment but in this case he got ousted by the board and everyone's saying look we're leaving unless you get him back in yeah so it's, I, it's, it's interesting very different I, pattern i i've i've been kind of following this tangentially in the last couple of days and you see people on, on especially on twitter like tweeting about this every five minutes like serious, otherwise serious commentators and AI experts that I follow, that I whose opinions I respect and trust, they, they completely got caught up in the drama of this whole thing, and and they say, oh, it's probably this, and then five minutes they say the exact opposite, and only to return to the original position five minutes later. And it's <laughs> is there is there any pattern there? I have not been paying attention to that on in 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 Twitter. Is there any pattern in terms of what people think is the is the underlying cause? I've seen this? different speculations, and I, I call them speculations because I don't think these people have. Well, I, I I I'm not sure they have reliable internal sources that that have knowledge of what's actually happening. Sure. But yeah, it could be around. Um, you know, he was trying to commercialize too quickly, um, too soon, and and um, kind of forego 
an emphasis on safety, but I've heard different people say they almost the exact opposite. And some people are saying that as a consequence of what's happening, open air is going to be much better and much safer. And I've, I've seen other people say again, the exact opposite. Interesting. So can I ask for your own input on something? Because your spouse had the opportunity to um, interview him in a public forum. Uh, I'm curious if, well, maybe I shouldn't get you to reveal any uh, personal discussions. I was just wondering if you had any speculation on his management style or candidness or anything, candor or anything like that. Uh, no, not based on, on that interaction. Yeah. Although I did, I did see somebody tweet um, yesterday. Um, he, I forget the person's name or title, but he's a like a senior manager um, at DeepMind, and he, according to him, he used to work with with Altman for a few years, and he claims that Altman lied to him on a number of occasions, and therefore he has reasons to doubt what he, he you know, his side of the story. But again, to me, it's just, you know, people are getting caught up in the in the drama of, of this whole thing, which kind of makes sense because it's, it, you know, it's such a, a big company that's that rose to prominence so quickly and has such a huge impact on, on people's lives today. I, I yeah. get I get why people are paying attention, but um, I don't know. Let's just wait for another day or two and learn what actually happened there. Yeah. Well, I do think this particular uh, scenario, though, uh, provides a nice segue to our topic this week because of, you know, having all of these members of the organization come forward and say, look, we think you should uh, remain in place and should continue to guide the organization. And our topic for this week is voice and silence, employee voice and and employee silence. Um, so, uh so I think it's an interesting, interesting uh, again segue for for the discussion. Yeah, and I, I gotta say, I uh, so I, I chose a topic again, um, not because you're lazy, just because I'm proactive. <laughs> because you keep uh, nixing my <laughs> suggestions is the is the better reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but the reason I chose it is because I. Um, uh, you know, I think both you and I, to a degree, have a have a big mouth and we we don't <laughs> <laughs> to keep our opinions to ourselves even when it might um you know put us in in difficult positions i would say would you would you agree yeah. with that, with that uh, certainly yeah i think it's a fair characterization and i will say as going through this research is it is something that was entirely new to me i mean of course i i was familiar with some of the related phenomenon and and it even relates back to some of the things we've talked about before like leader behavior um but I couldn't help, but as I was reading through this content, think about it in the context of a university, mm -hmm. uh, which are very new, unique places in certain regards in terms of their organizational dynamics. And um, and this question is sort of who can speak up and when is is something that's really interesting uh, in in an academic environment. Yeah, so that that was another reason why I thought this this topic was interesting. I think it's it's very contemporary and and relevant today in in environment. I don't think it's restricted to academia. I think it's kind of across sure. the board in many institutions and companies in many different countries today. It's become, and you and I have talked about this, and we've had this conversation in many different versions over the years, dating a couple of you know like twenty years ago. So it's not something recent that we've talked about that there are certain topics 
that are almost impossible to talk about out in the open. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. It's it's just too risky because you might get reprimanded or um, people might look at you funny. And I guess that was more like 20 years ago today. It's more like you're going to get fired and canceled and deplatformed. Sure. For, for things. And I think a lot of the things we're talking about are not especially controversial things. It's sort of open inquiry about organizational dynamics of any sort, but, but this, this sort of tendency to be very cagey about one says, or maybe, um, maybe not cagey, just, super reflective before saying anything uh in depending on the topic uh i think i think is a real dynamic in in contemporary organizational life yeah so let, let's just bring everybody else into into the fold um uh, in the way of kind of clarifying what we're going to do um so we'll and and if you think i'm Mr. Presenting what we're going to do please jump in but i think we're going to start by basically saying what what we're actually talking about and give sort of a working definition of employee voice and employee silence. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about some of the antecedents of these phenomena, meaning what um, what predicts or make these um, phenomena more likely in organizations, voice and, uh, and silence. Um, and then we'll talk about some of their consequences, both for individuals and for organizations. We'll talk about why it's important um, to understand the dynamics um, through which both of these phenomena unfold because they, they have very significant employee level and organizational consequences. And I guess we'll finish by talking about, and that kind of be, would be sort of a natural transition from that, about the managerial implications. Are you yep. happy Sounds with that? Good. Absolutely. Okay. So, so- uh, <clears throat> I feel like I'm giving a lecture almost. <laughs> so what's employee voice? Employee voice. Um, and um, I'm going to read it out of a, out of the page. It is informal and discretionary communication of ideas, suggestions, concerns, problems, or opinions about work-related issues. And that's an important addition with the intent of bringing about improvement or change. Right? So it's pe- yeah. people speaking their mind not just in order to complain or you know berate people or anything like that it's it's within explicit purpose of trying to improve things within the organization and make them better now yeah and so that oh go ahead that definition that you offered is specifically from an article by elizabeth morrison uh in annual review of organizational psychology and organizational behavior called employee voice and voice and silence taking stock a decade later one of the things I thought was interesting is that that definition is slightly different than some of the others that that we encounter in this research it, with the addition of things like informal, right? So there's definitions elsewhere where it's just discretionary communication of ideas, suggestions, concerns, or opinions. It maintains that idea of we're talking about uh, these expressions of one's perspective that are intended to improve the organization in some way, Um but that addition of informal is kind of interesting because it necessarily then rules out things like formal mechanisms like suggestion boxes or not boxes, but suggestion systems. Um, and also rules out things like whistleblowing. Right. Yeah. She actually, she said, she says that in the paper. Yeah. Because whistleblowing is going outside of the organization to report about something that happens within the organization, possibly making it better, but you're going outside of the business. So it's a different thing. Right. Right. 
So I, I do think that sets some interesting boundaries on the, the concept. Yeah, um, but she also talks about two fundamental forms of voice. One is promotive, which is kind of suggestion-focused. Um, and the other one is prohibitive, which is problem-focused, which I guess is more critical in nature. Yeah, which is, again, though, focused on improving the organization. So you can think of things like, you know, a person coming forward and saying, I think our environment is, I've seen uh, workplace harassment occur within the environment or something like that. So trying to call attention to things that that one still thinks could improve the organization, but improve it by addressing an existing problem. Yeah. And I think we can both think of people who are more, uh, let's say, prohibitive, voice prohibitive um, oriented versus people who are more promotive um, in nature. And it's important to keep this in mind. And I guess we can put in a pin in this and, and circle back to this later because um, prohibitive and promote, promotive forms of voice have different outcomes in, in some of the mm -hmm. studies that we looked at. So they actually lead to different different consequences. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to go ahead and define employee silence as well here? Yeah, so silence is um, when employees withhold ideas, information, um, about problems or opinions on work-related issues, right? So it's I'm going to say something and then I'm going to I'm qualify the, the what I'm saying. It's basically a failure to to voice. If I were to use voice as a verb, it's a failure to express voice. So I'm going to qualify this unless you want to qualify this because I can see you're ready to jump in. Well, it's just that I think that's that's one of the contested elements within this this research. So it's very clear that a lot of people, a lot of the research seems to have framed voice and silence as two ends of a single continuum, right? That silence is essentially the opposite of voice. But some of the other research, and I, I think we should touch on it at some point, we don't have to do it right away, um, says not really, that, that in reality, they should be treated as correlated, but distinct phenomenon, right? That because silence is a conscious withholding, um, the, the things that drive silence might be very different than the things that drive uh, voice. You know, what makes a person choose to uh, explicitly come forward with their suggestions or opinions or perspectives uh, openly uh, might be driven by very different factors than someone consciously choosing not to offer those uh, those perspectives and uh, suggestions. I think I'm persuaded by, again, the review of, of uh, a number of studies that they are distinct phenomena, mm -hmm. even though they, they, you know, they're often framed as, as a continuum. I think they're two different things, certainly related, right? Uh, inversely, but, uh, but two, two different things. So um, I don't, I don't disagree, um, but, but let's, let's get back to this. Do we want to first talk about some of the predictors or drivers of voice and silence or some of the outcomes? Sure. Because I, let me just make this kind of general observation that I have, which is that on the whole, I would say that voice is good for individuals and organizations, of course, with different um, you know, versions of that statement being right in different circumstances. And silence is, by and large, uh, a phenomenon that organizations and individuals would want to avoid. 
I would say. So one is definitely has various positive effects on, on individuals and organizations. And the other one has various negative effects on, on individuals and organizations, which is, which is not entirely surprising, but some of, some of the individual predictors and outcomes are quite interesting. So shall we start talking about those for a minute? Sure. So predictors of voice maybe first. Yeah, let's do voice. So there are a few things that are kind of, um, I guess, obvious. Um, people are more likely to, do we want to treat, let's just put, make a decision. Do we want to treat voice as a verb or as a noun? Um, I think of noun. A noun. So do, do we yeah. express voice or how do you? I think so, yes. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an immigrant. I have to make sure that my use of language is um, precise and clear to our American overlords. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think it, actually the precision here is driven by the research context, right? So, like we would usually use voice as a in in either way, right? But in this case, because it's sort of a phenomenon of focus, I think we might want to say that you want to express his voice mm -hmm. as opposed to simply voices okay. you know, their opinion. I uh, that's fine. So yeah. people are more likely to express voice when they perceive that there's an opportunity for improvement. Right. So they need to be aware that there's a problem or an opportunity for improvement. And if they have ideas for improvement, they're more likely to express them, which, yes, that, that makes sense. Yeah. They're more likely to express voice when they perceive their manager as being open minded versus closed. Right. Right. Because yep. that someone is actually going to you know, pay attention and do something about what I tell them. Um, they all like to express voice when they believe that voicing, and that's straight up out of the paper. So <laughs> voicing will be safe and effective, right? So it goes back to what we said before, that expressing your mind is not going to hurt you in any way, reputational or otherwise. Yep. We also saw here the return of the big five, which we've talked about a number of times, the personality characteristics. So uh, things like extroversion and conscientiousness. Um, are are clear predictors of, of voice, the use of voice within an organization. Yeah, if people have a proactive personality, uh, again, they're more likely to express voice. Um, so there's an interesting, um, one of the studies looked at gender differences, which I thought was interesting because it's not obvious. So it found that women do have lower voice self-efficacy right, which would reduce voice behavior or the expression of voice. But this is mitigated, which is an interesting point, when um, women have an opportunity to observe other female leaders speak up. Yeah, this is another one of those that I think is very sort of consistent with with a lot of, um, I don't know, maybe taken for granted. It's like, uh, once again, I've I've already outed myself as saying that I thought women were nicer than men and found out that the research literature did not support that <laughs> assertion. But I think similarly, you know, I, I sort of have this perception that uh, men tend to, <laughs> we've already conceded that you and I are both loud mouths <laughs> in many, uh, in many aspects of our uh, uh, professional and, uh, and, and private lives. Um, and so I, I think I tend to have the assumption that men tend to be a lot more uh, vocally assertive and so there's a certain degree to which that that sort of uh, lower voice self-efficacy for women seems not surprising to me, 
but I did think that that uh, condition that that is mitigated when when there are uh, female leaders who who are you know expressing their voice um, models a certain type of behavior. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. There's a bunch of studies that looked at how different attitudes and emotional states impact on people's uh, propensity to express voice. So, for instance, a, a person's obligation to the organization is, is a predictor of expressing voice. The more obligated you feel to the organization, the more likely you, you are to you know say something that might improve the way it functions, because if you don't care about it, then why would you do that? Um, Wait, there's one more. There's one more which was status, right? The higher status a person is, in status can mean many things here, but even just in terms of hierarchical position, uh, it could also mean based on expertise or knowledge or something like that. But higher status uh, is, a, is a clear predictor of voice, right? And again, that's not too surprising, right? The, the higher up a person is, the the more they trust their their own expressions of opinion within the organization. Yeah. However, employees who feel overqualified for their role are less likely to engage in voice, which is um, which is an interesting point. And what do you make of that? That they think it, they think <laughs> the the role is beneath them, or something like that. That yeah. you know the yeah. Yeah, I'm too I'm too good for this place, so I, I, I'm not going to bother with it. Or maybe there's also a sense of frustration that I'm, my talent is not properly recognized, and I might want to jump ship and move to a different place, and therefore I'm not going to bother trying to improve this place. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and there was actually a separate uh, a separate study that that did corroborate this um, this point, which is that people who are about to leave or are thinking about leaving are less likely to to express voice as well. So I think this point is valid. Um, there was yeah, a very absolutely. interesting study that looked at the relationship between job satisfaction and propensity or um, uh, as a driver of, of expressing voice and found a U-shaped relationship between satisfaction and voice, meaning that people who are um, very low in job satisfaction or are dissatisfied with work are have a, a higher likelihood of expressing voice. And then if job satisfaction slightly improves, the likelihood of expressing voice goes down, but then if you're really happy and satisfied, then it goes back up, which I thought was yeah. a non-trivial finding. But do you know what this made me think about? And I actually left a note about this in the in the paper that I shared with you. That it might be a similar phenomenon to what we see with elections in in many countries, which is that you have pop, uh, groups within the population that are much more likely to vote or express voice. And I guess in, you know voting is a form of expressing your voice. Um, and other groups that are much less likely to do so. And I think I'm pretty sure there are studies about this, and I, I haven't read them in detail, but I, I feel like I've heard about them before and people talk about them before. That, And it's certainly, I, I, I believe it's certainly a, a finding that's been discussed in different places, that those who are more likely to vote are those who, on average, have more extreme views, political views. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the centrists are, that that's the group that's least likely to vote. And therefore, what you yeah. have popping up, and, and I guess your country is a good example of this, is you know political polls that are drifting further apart from one another because the people who do bother to go out and vote are those that have the more extreme views and things. Yeah, I think. I think when you, when you <laughs> extrapolate from this to an organizational environment, you know you might get view, you know many views from different groups of people, but those that have the 
maybe the more, I don't know, conservative or, or um, conventional um, suggestions as to how to improve the organization, those voices rarely get heard. And I think, you know, yeah, if you want yeah. to pay attention to what people are saying, that that's something that as a manager, you might want to pay attention to. And maybe those would be the most valuable perspectives, right? Yeah. As a manager, like the, the, the person who, uh, you know, can see things in a balanced fashion might not be the one who's most ready to to offer suggestions, but the like like the fire your CEO over the weekend <laughs> with, <laughs> with very little explanation. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, so again, it's that that dynamic between the people who aren't saying anything and feel or you know give the vibe of vibe of disengagement, and at the other end, the people who won't shut up about it. Uh, again, the the maybe the more uh, extremist perspective, and the lack of input on one and the excess input on the other could both have have uh, detrimental outcomes. Whereas the the people in the middle is maybe where you really want to be soliciting uh, perspectives and input. So you know what they've done in so here in Australia, for instance, voting is mandatory. Um, Interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure yeah. you want to do this within an organization, but I'm, I guess that there are ways to mitigate this if you're willing to take the, the required measures. Uh, do we want to do we want to touch on antecedents of silence? Really? Oh wait, well let, let's talk about okay a couple of others because there are a few other interesting ones. So <laughs> attitudes and emotions still right. So there's one that I thought was mm-hmm. interesting: guilt. Stemming from unethical behavior can motivate both promotive and prohibitive voice, right? Feeling guilty about something um, can promote voice. Emotional suffering, and there was one study in particular that looked at emotional suffering during COVID-19, leads to less voice behavior or um, expression of voice. In terms of... Sorry, did you want to comment on that one? Well, I was just going to say that's one that's interesting relating back to an earlier topic of ours with the remote work, right? With the discussion of remote work that mm. it'll, I would be curious to see if any future research focuses on sort of the the relationship between voice and remote work environments. If people don't necessarily feel that relational connection because they only see each other, you know, briefly and most of their work is done in isolation, um, I would anticipate a really significant impact on voice, but I don't know that that research has been done yet. I'm not sure. Yeah. In terms of leadership styles, um, so ethical leadership, moral leadership um, is a is a strong driver of voice behavior, of expression of voice. Authentic leadership, same thing. Helping behavior, responsiveness to input. Um, inclusive language for managers, again, increases the, the likelihood of voice. Humility and integrity has a similar effect. Whereas um, the flip side of this is authoritarian leadership, narcissism, uh, narcissistic leadership are negative, negatively correlated with the expression of voice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that humility one was the one that sort of jumped out to me. You know, if if you have leaders who basically are signaling to the organization, um, that they are open to learning, that they, you know, are open to taking feedback and and using it, uh, that they basically don't think they already know it all. One can see why that would why that would uh, have this high correlation with voice, right? That 
that a, a leader saying to their uh, team, uh, you know, I, I don't think I know all the answers. I want your input. Uh, I think that would naturally be conducive. Yeah. And a couple of organizational factors or contextual factors, support and respect from peers and supervisors um, can increase a sense of psychological safety, which in turn can increase voice behavior, right? So we feel psychologically safe to express our opinion and we're not concerned about, you know, being reprimanded in any severe or harsh manner as a consequence. Um, so very similar to what you just said, participative decision-making on the part of management can increase the expression of voice, whereas uh, increased conflict, politics, and red tape, as well as job insecurity, all of them are negatively correlated um, to voice behavior. And this, all these relationships are mediated, that's what this particular um, study found, through ego depletion. Right. So conflict, politics, red tape all contribute to the depletion of the ego, to feeling less secure, less confident, which which leads to um, a reduced um, propensity to engage in, in voice behavior. I want to come back to those two topic, uh, two of the concepts you hit there, um, maybe after we uh, discuss um, silence a little bit, um, specifically the uh, the psychological safety and the uh, effectiveness or efficacy like do you think you can make a difference because it seems to me based on at least one of the studies we looked at that those are big drivers but they operate differently with regard to voice and silence okay so you want to come back to those yeah yeah let's quickly talk about the the uh, predictors of silence and also one of the interesting things is that we see that there are different forms of silence and maybe maybe that's worth exploring a little bit can i just make one more point before we move to silence Sure. One quick point. Don't make that face, young man. No, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> One thing that I thought was glaringly absent here was culture. So I haven't seen any studies that talk about the relationship between organizational culture and voice behavior. Um, so I think we I think we do see that, and it's under a slightly different label, but I think we do see that with regard to silence. So one of the big uh the big antecedents of silence, you know, the the conscious withholding of recommendations um, was what's called a climate of silence. So this, and th this might be one that, that I read and you didn't read, but there was a paper by uh, Michael Knoll and Rolf Van Dyck in uh, journal of business ethics. It's called, do I hear the whistle? Uh, a first attempt to measure four forms of employee silence and their correlates. And they talk about one of the key antecedents is a climate of culture within the organ uh, climate of silence. Sorry. Climate of, climate of culture would be rather redundant. Climate of silence, which is sort of collective shared experience that it is dangerous or futile to speak up on critical issues. And, and I think that's, that's the same as culture, right? Or it's certainly a characteristic of culture where you set a certain cultural context within the organization where, you know, uh, people, you know, people who pop their head up, people who offer their voice get, get brushed back. Mm -hmm or shown the door. Right, right. Well, that's the one of the really, I mean, we, I think maybe it would be worth just sort of touching on this in, in that particular study. They basically articulate four different types of silence and they're, they're related uh, again, uh, highly correlated across, but distinct. And three of the four, it seems like we're, we're well-established in the literature, but then the fourth is one that they're offering themselves. So if I could just quickly hit those, 
So one is acquiescent silence, which is when uh, people don't speak up because they don't think their opinion is valued, right? They're sort of, they think their opinion will be disregarded. And so they, they withhold their, uh, their perspectives. Uh, the second form is quiescent silence. So acquiescent and quiescent sound very similar, but different forms. And quiescent silence means you're uh, withholding to protect yourself. Um, so one again, the first one is, uh, I don't think what I say matters at all. So I'm not going to offer my opinion. And the second one is, I'm not going to offer my opinion because I'll get punished for it. Right? I, I fear that I'll be punished for that uh, perspective. The third form is pro-social silence. So basically, you don't offer your opinion or your perspective because it might make somebody else look bad. So saving so you're, you, Well, saving face for someone, right? Not for yourself. I think if it was for yourself, it would be quiescent silence. Um, but in this case, it's, you know, I don't want somebody else to look bad, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my mouth shut. Uh, and then the fourth which was really interesting is what they refer to as opportunistic silence. And this is where someone withholds information to benefit themselves. They think withholding, you know, that perspective will actually bring them some advantage. Yeah, I think, it, and, I, and I said this to you before, um, much of this research, both on voice and, but specifically on silence and the forms of, of the four forms that you just talked about reminds me a lot of the work of um, Chris Archeris. And um, for anybody who doesn't know the name, uh, he was, I don't know if he's still around. I'm not sure. I think he's probably, uh, well, we should be careful because we, <laughs> we don't want to uh, put someone in a grave prematurely. I'll look while we're talking. So he, he he wrote in the 1970s, and even though it's you know pretty old by now, uh, his work is is fundamental to the whole field of organizational learning. It was one of the pioneers. Him and um, um, Schön, I apologize for my poor German pronunciation. Um, Arteris and Schön wrote extensively about organizational learning in the 1970s and and beyond that as well. But one of the fundamental concepts that he um, or they came up with in their early work was the distinction between single loop and double loop learning that I've, I've heard many people still use, you know, recently. Um, and the idea is that, and they talk about single loop and double loop learning in organizations and, and single loop learning involves, you know, a, a corrective action on the part of the organization. So you're trying to achieve something um, but that's something that doesn't happen. You don't meet your sales quota in, in the, in the first quarter of the year. Um, so you, you know, you hire more salespeople to meet that quota or something along these lines. Mm -hmm. And double loop learning involves deeper reflection on the assumptions that underpin that objective in the first place. Do I really want to meet the, that sales quota in this quarter? Well, these line of products, or maybe I want to go into a different market, or you know, actually produce something else, or, or servicitize my products, whatever it is. It, it, it requires deeper reflection on, on the underlying assumptions behind the original objective. So it, it's it's deeper than single loop learning. So it goes yeah. from a mere correction to uh, you know a more fundamental reconsideration of what we do as an organization, as a business. What is our identity? What is our strategy? Um, what are our long-term objectives? 
And in order to engage in, in double loop learning, which is by far more valuable and important for organizations if they want to survive and flourish long term, you have to move beyond what they call model one behavior into model two behavior. And model one behavior reminds me a lot of what you just said about silence, right? Because it's a, a mode of interpersonal, um, I guess, climate in organizations. But I think it really nicely maps on to other areas of life. And you can just think about that. Yeah. Where um, people define various situations and in, in interactions from the angle of, I want to win this interaction. I need to be right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to lose. It's not about finding the truth. It's not about um, making sure all areas of a specific topic get covered and and scrutinized or analyzed. It's just about me being right um, and proving my point. And yet I want to do this in a way that doesn't hurt the other people that I interact with. Right. So I want to keep the conversation, the interaction rational avoid any emotional arousal or negative emotions on my part or on the part of the other people that I interact with so that no one gets hurt and nothing mm-hmm. sensitive gets said. So everything needs to be very analytical and, and rational in order for me to win the interaction, right? To make my point. Yeah. Many things uh, are left Just unsaid. as an aside. Oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. I'm just saying that many, many things that are left unsaid in, in these sort of interactions. Right, because I don't want to hurt your feelings, and I want—I don't want to tell you, Sean, that you know the way you talked to me last last night was actually quite offensive, and I—I I, I didn't sleep much last night, and um, we did not, in fact, have a conversation last night. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we did. Why didn't we, Sean? I really wanted to talk. To you. <laughs> um, as an aside, Chris Argyris passed away almost exactly a decade ago, November sixteenth of twenty thirteen. Turns out, so yeah, was, actually. What you just mentioned, um, we can edit this out. Um, do we want to touch on the implicit voice theories? Because this is kind of interesting. Because the, a lot of those implicit voice theories are this sort of taken for granted assumptions of of what makes people either express voice or silence. And they're very much the kinds of things you're talking about. I don't know if you want to talk through those at all. Um, sure. Yeah. Okay. So that the taken for the not spoken uh, assumptions that undergird so much of this silence and voice behavior, I think, is one of the really interesting aspects of this phenomenon. So there there was a study that we did look at in Academy Management Journal by Detert and Edmondson that focuses on implicit voice theories. Uh, That's the title of it. Implicit voice theories taken for granted rules of self-censorship at work. And they identify, uh, first of all, what do they mean by implicit voice theories? They mean the the unstated or generally unstated sort of frameworks or schema, uh, you know, the ways of thinking that drive people to either express their voice or remain silent. This is one of those studies, by the way, where silence and voice are treated as just sort of opposite ends of a uh, continuum. And it it's kind of interesting, you know, a lot of the the theories that emerge are things that uh, I I think you recognize once they're stated out loud, right? Um, But could very easily sort of operate under the surface within a lot of organizations. So the first one is, uh, they call it presumed target identification. And this is the idea that people don't want to say something because they think it will be 
un, it will be interpreted as a personal attack hmm. on another, right? So this sense that people get so attached to their ideas that if you offer, you know, you contradict their opinion, that they're going to think you're attacking them rather than trying to talk through the idea. So that's the first one. The second one is this perceived need to have solid data or evidence that people don't want to offer their opinion if they don't feel like their argument is buttoned down. And this is, again, one of those where I think leader behavior is going to play in because I know people who, you know, you offer a suggestion right away. They they want evidence. They want the, you know, you, they expect you to have, you know, developed a full, you know, fully articulated and uh, uh, argument with with full evidence on all points. And, you know, that's that's not the way informal conversation tends to go. Right. So that idea that sometimes uh, people assume that they shouldn't offer their opinion unless they have an airtight case. Um, the third form is what they refer to as don't pi bypass the boss upward. So this perception that I should not jump over my boss in expressing opinion. Right. So I, I might be willing to offer it to my manager, but I shouldn't go over the manager. A related, the fourth, which is related, is don't embarrass the boss in public, which I think people, I think most of us learn that one. Uh, this was not true in my particular household. My parents were very um, uh, self-effacing and things like that. But I think a lot of people learn it at home, right? Like you don't contradict your parents in public, right? So don't bypass, don't embarrass the boss in public. Um, and then the fifth one is negative career consequences for speaking up, right? So it's, again, all of these, most of these go unstated, but they drive a lot of people's behavior that you think, well, if I speak up, I'm going to get punished uh, and it'll show up in my evaluation or it'll show up in uh, in the job assignments that I receive. So those are the the five. They, they discover a couple others that are sort of smaller uh, in this particular study, but those are the the five that seem to really predominate in terms of the taken for granted that drive this voice and silence behavior. Did they talk about consequences of, of silence at all in that paper? Yeah, I think uh, along the lines of what you said uh, earlier, the general consensus within this literature is that voice has a lot of upsides, right? Uh, excluding the things like that, you know, inverse U-shaped relationship we talked about earlier, but that voice in general uh, within organizations, it, it drives, you know, improvement, continuous improvement. It drives innovation. It drives job satisfaction uh, because people, yeah, creativity. People are happier in an environment where they think their their perspective does matter and, and can contribute to the organization. So very much, uh, I think there's strong evidence that voice is overall a, a real positive. Um, and that silence uh, is, 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 has very bad outcomes, right? It means that organizations fail to address real problems that exist, um, that they fail to innovate uh, and, and generate new solutions, um, that job satisfaction goes down significantly mm -hmm. uh, when people feel like they can't express their perspectives. And uh, one of the clear drivers is turnover behavior. People are more likely to leave an organization. And now there's a little bit of a- Can I, can I just add a couple more? Yeah, sure, sure. It also leads to um, burnout, to a sense of fear within the organization, to emotional exhaustion, to deviant behavior in organizations, um, and it, it actually hurts creativity. Yeah, one of the interesting things that did come out of that particular study on the implicit um, implicit uh, 
voice theories is uh, in addition to all those elements of leader behavior, organizational centralization, which is sort of, I, I take it as a proxy for bureaucracy, you know, how, uh, how tight the bureaucracy, the, the organizational structure is within, uh, within an organization has clear relationships to some of these silence behaviors. So, you know, the more rigidly structured the bureaucracy is, the more certain forms of or certain implicit silent of uh, voice theories, and again, uh, as an extension, forms of silence sort of emerge, um, which I do think is interesting from the perspective of of you know organizational design and and the role of sort of flattening or or bureaucracy within the firm. Yeah, and the, I think this is corroborated by another study that we mentioned before that looked at red tape and how it's negatively associated with uh, voice. And it, it's, I mean, it makes total sense to me because if you feel like the organization is so complicated and, and <laughs> I'm not describing, uh, I'm not entirely describing my university, but, you know, to get anything done. So, <laughs> and this is very recent, still fresh. So I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I remember the details very clearly because it, it just had, we had a conversation just the other day about proposing a new, a new course on um, a, a, a contemporary phenomenon, right? On on, on um, something to do with AI, but in, in a specific MBA program. But mm -hmm. if I wanted to offer the course now and put in a, a proposal now, we're in November, 2023, it's not gonna go into the curriculum until 2026. So, because there's yeah. so many different layers of, of of decisions that need to be made before anything happens, before it actually gets put in front of students, and so many different committees and and across different you know departments and faculties within the university, it's so complicated. There's so much red tape, and it's so long. You can easily see why people would be discouraged and just not say anything in the first place. Yeah, yeah, and that gets to this idea of perceived impact, right? Which again, we don't have to jump studies here. But it's pretty clear to me that one of the key relationships is voice and impact, that if people feel like their voice is going to make a difference, that's the big driver of expressing voice, right? That they think it'll make a difference. Um, and if you have that kind of bureaucratic uh, form and the, you know, lots of red tape, then people feel like, well, what's the point, right? Why should I even do it? Um and I'm going to go ahead and reference this real quick, but there was an article in the Academy of Management Journal by Scherf Park and Isaac Jan, um, and it's, it's specifically about distinguishing voice and silence at work. So this is a, a paper that makes uh, the argument that these are two different things, right? Again, correlated, but two different things. And one of the key findings there is that um, perceived impact, this feeling that that voice will matter, is very closely related to the expression of voice, whereas the key driver or the key element related to silence is not so much impact as psychological safety, right? So there's there's some relationship between uh, perceived impact and uh, and psychological safety on both voice and silence. But the the key idea is that basically psychological safety is more closely related to silence. People won't speak up, won't conscious will consciously withhold their ideas when they don't feel psychologically safe um, and people will speak up when they think what they say will have a 
will make a difference. Yeah. So they actually make the point, just to reiterate what you said before, that these are fundamentally different phenomena that may be correlated, but they have very different um, drivers. And mm-hmm. they actually make the claim that these drivers have biological roots um, in the human organism, right? They talk about these two distinct regulatory systems. One is the uh, behavioral activation system, and that one underpins voice behavior, right? Mm-hmm. This is uh, the system that motivates action towards potential opportunities that reward the self, right? It's associated with things like um, hope and enthusiasm with these positive emotions because we're excited about achieving something and we are energized to do it. And on the other hand, the other regulatory system is behavioral inhibition system, which underpins silence behavior, right? Not not saying anything. Um, And rather than motivating action towards something, this regulatory system motivates action away from something, away from something, punishment, right? Um, So it's associated with negative emotional states like fear or worry or anxiety and a cognitive state of vigilance. So it's distinctly different from the regulatory system that underpins that underpins voice. So they're very different things according to this study. And I thought yeah, it, was, and I, I, it made sense to me. Yeah, I thought it was quite persuasive, right? Like it, th- that was the one that made me think, you know, I, I guess at first blush, I would have thought of voice and silence as, as just inversions of one another or opposite ends of a continuum. But I, I thought this was quite persuasive in in arguing that there there are different dynamics involved in both, right? And you could imagine an environment in which, or context within an organization in which one would offer their their voice, and then in the same organization in a different context, deliberately uh, withhold their their perspective, so that you you know in the same organization you could have individuals who express voice and withhold and engage in silence depending on contextual factors and things like that. So yeah, I, I thought it was compelling. It's also important from a practical perspective. So I don't think that this distinction is merely theoretical, although it is theoretically interesting. I think there's, there's very practical implications to this distinction, because if you're as a manager wanting increase voice behavior and decrease silence behavior, and like we said before, there's, there are very good reasons to do both of these things you actually have two different levers to play with here, right? Mm-hmm. Because in order to increase voice, you want to make people believe or make them understand that they're, what they say is actually going to have an impact. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the main lever for voice. It's perceived impact. Right. Whereas to minimize silence behavior, you want to make sure that people feel safe to speak up. Right? Yeah. You want to yeah, introduce exactly. a culture of, like we said before, um, inclusivity or making people believe that making mistakes is not a big deal. We don't mm-hmm. punish people for, pu- people for making mistakes. Every mistake is an opportunity to learn something new and improve on it and, and do better the next time. And all these, you know, things that we've heard time and time again about organizational cultures, right? That, that you want to make sure that you know, people feel like it's an open environment and there are no stupid, like I always tell my students, there are no stupid questions. We're all here to learn from each other. Um, so these are really important um, things to put in place where you, if you want to decrease silence behavior. Right. Can I just, uh, what you just said, what you always tell your students, um, I have often reflected as a teacher sort of what my uh, stated and unstated behavior signals to students, because I remember when I was first doing my MBA, there was a statistics teacher who said, come on, I want to hear what you say. There's nothing, 
no bad questions. But then whenever somebody asked a question, he would sometimes kind of embarrass them for it. So he is overtly saying, I want your voice, but he is covertly saying, shut up and listen to me. Right. And I think people learn very quickly from the from the covert signals sent by behavior, um, despite what you're saying with your mouth. Yeah, well, you definitely want to avoid these contradictions as an actor, right? You, you yeah. should deliver on what you're saying. Otherwise, it sends a very, very bad signal to the organization. Yeah, I think that's one, though, that really takes some double loop learning, right? That reflective piece, because I, I think a lot of us in organizational life, you know, we're, we're busy sort of trying to keep the lights on and keep things rolling. And we we might be sending six mixed signals and it requires us to actually stop and reflect on what our, um, you know, again, implicit, uh, what implicit messages we're sending based on uh, our behavior and not our stated uh, desires or objectives. Yeah. Should we um, should we offer some managerial implications? Yeah, I think so. I think so. So what's your what's your biggest takeaway from this? So I have a couple. Uh, I think that what we just touched on the the relationship between voice and perceived impact, as well as the relationship between psychological safety and silence, uh, I, I think suggested a, a number of things to me. One, if we want to foster voice within the organization, I think offering clear examples of where voice from people at all levels of the organization had an impact, I think is really would be re is really valuable. Um, you know, you hear I've heard stories about things like uh, what's the firm Atlassian, I think Atlassian is a software that might be an Australian software firm, is it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So they make Jira and Confluence and a couple of, they control a number of uh, fairly significant software uh, brands. Um, and my understanding is that they do these, you know, once a quarter, they'll do these sort of uh, one day problem solving sessions that give all the members of the organization opportunity to get together in sort of a relaxed environment to just come up with, try and come up with solutions to various problems confronting the firm. And I think if you can have those types of visible uh, uh, activities where you can show that that voice makes a difference, right? That not only is the organization listening, but that it's actually taking uh, actions based on the the suggestions or opinions that that bubble up within the organization. I think that would be really critical because it it reinforces that perceived impact where people can see in a real sense uh, this isn't just lip service. What I say, what what I offer, could make a difference here. Yeah, I I agree, and I would add to this. So I think there are certain things that you can't really properly manage as a as a leader within an organization. Like it's very difficult to manage the, the personalities or the individual traits of in, of, of people working for you. But the other things that you can do to um, increase the chances of people engaging in voice behavior, um, so you can create concrete opportunities for people to speak up their mind and then come up with suggestions that might be you know product related or project related um or whatever it is right you can you can create structured opportunities for people to engage in this sort of behavior as a manager yeah. like we said before you can model certain 
types of behavior that would encourage these behaviors from other people. Uh, so we've, we've spoken about before, um, he, you know, um, demonstrating humility as a, mm-hmm. as a leader and integrity and, and expressing openly the fact or your belief, hopefully it's sincere, that you actually have something to learn from other people. Mm-hmm. That not everything is written in stone and nothing's going to change because I know best and I've made my decision already. And and on that yeah. note, I've I've seen so many times where leaders have said, "Yes, I want to get your opinion about this, that, and the other, and it's really important to me." But in the end of the day, there's going to be a process of eliciting feedback from people, and none of it is going to be taken on board. And mm-hmm. there's nothing more annoying and and depleting than than going through this because you get yeah. people get very cynical very quickly about about this. Uh, I want your opinion on something along these lines real quick. Um, so here within our organization, you mentioned that there, you know, sometimes there's bureaucratic things within the university uh, at our own, in our own college, there's, there's some policy changes being considered and it has created some differences of opinion. And there was a session held last week um, that was a faculty governance session. So, you know, not supposed to be led by the Dean in this case, but supposed to be led by the faculty and the department chairs were asked to exempt themselves from this session. And initially I sort of bristled at it where, you know, I'm still faculty. I still teach. I am a a member of the faculty. And so I sort of thought two things. I thought, you know, why should I not be there to offer my own opinion, but also why should people be afraid to hear, to have me there? And as a department chair, there is an administrative role, but this is one of those where I felt like, oh, you know, I I hope that that the people within my department feel that they can disagree with me and that that's fine. And, you know, that we can have those types of conversations. But clearly there's maybe a certain sense that um, that the department chairs may be may the presence of the de- department chairs might stifle that conversation. And so I decided to to not go to the session to go ahead and stay out and it wasn't a requirement it was just a suggestion um but i said okay i'll stay away um what do you make of that should i have stayed away or should i have gone what was the reasoning that was given for the department managers to stay away uh well it was it was sort of explicitly that that some some members of the faculty might not feel comfortable expressing their opinions in the presence of the department chairs i i i think it depends if I were in your shoes, it, it would have depended on, on my assessment of my relationship or my relationships with my um, um, faculty within the department. Mm-hmm. If my sense was that our relationships are by and large healthy and, and open and candid, I would have gone. But if I felt that in any way my presence there, my presence there would have stopped even one person from speaking up, maybe I would have stayed away just to allow them that opportunity to give them that, that opportunity. Yeah. All right. So that's a good affirmation because that was almost exactly my calculus, right? I certainly do hope um, that that my faculty, that the faculty within our department feel that they can express their opinion openly, even if it directly contradicts my own, that's fine, right? Is is my feeling. Um, but I did think exactly that, that, you know, well, if, if my presence or our presence is going to... Um, cause people to remain silent, then then I'll go ahead and, and not go. Yeah. Um, but I debated it internally quite a bit. <laughs> um, so I have one more, I have one more that goes along those same lines, uh, which is this discussion of implicit 
voice theories, I thought was quite interesting also. And I would, I would love as a manager to see if there are ways, and it's something I will certainly think about, ways to surface what those are, right? And maybe this could be in one-on-one conversations to just get at uh, why would people not express their opinion? Are any of those five, right? Is it a feeling of not cr- contradicting the boss in public or being afraid that people will take it as a personal attack or, or fearing for negative uh, consequences for the, for the individual? I would I would love uh, to to be able to surface those types of things. So I think trying to create opportunities to to surface those implicit theories, um, I think would be really interesting for a manager. And again, my gut feeling is maybe the way to do that first is in one to one conversations, and then second to bring that into a public forum. And the reason you would want to know what the underlying reasons are is because that there would be different ways to address each of them is that is that correct yeah right and and the assumption is if it's there it's there right like you as a manager it's you know dynamics play themselves out and it's better to have it in front of you than behind your back right so if it's a reality in the organization uh it's it's better to get it out in front of you so that you can try to address it than have it operating unspoken uh, under the surface, but don't you think you said it's best to do to do it in, in a one-on-one conversation? But don't you think it's a bit uh, can be a bit tricky, to kind of go to a person and ask them upfront. <laughs> it's kind of ironic. Um, tell me why you're not saying anything. Yeah. yeah, no. So I don't think that would be the way to go about it. But I take your point. Uh, I think it's more. I think sometimes uh, taking out the personal element is the way to go about it. So saying something like. Um, maybe asking a, an associate professor, you know, every organization has a grapevine, right? Uh, I don't know if this is a metaphor you guys use in Australia, but the grapevine is the, the, uh, informal channels of communication, uh, operating under the surface. Right. And so maybe going to an associate professor and saying, okay, what do you think the, what do you think the junior faculty, junior faculty usually refers to pre-tenure faculty, what do you think the assistant professors are thinking about this? You know, what have you heard anything? And it's not asking for names. It's not asking for attributions. It's just saying, tell me what you think the the thinking is. Maybe not for yourself, but for others. And then that gives people a, an avenue to say, well, this is what I think is going on. I, I think it's it's not always straightforward. What's the best way to um to get this information? Um, mm-hmm. because like we said before, it's likely that one of the reasons, maybe the core reason why people don't speak up at the, why people engage in silence behavior is because they don't feel the psychological safety to allow them to do right. that. And if you interrogate them about this, even in the most informal and cordial, cordial way possible, that sense of lack of safety might still be there. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I, I think we need to think about ways of kind of stepping away from this um from this loop of of, of um, lack of safety and, and figure out a, a mechanism or a forum or maybe the introduction of somebody from outside of the organization um to allow people this this outlet to give them this outlet where they they will feel psychologically safe to to speak their mind and then say what the reasons are that they haven't spoken so far 
Yeah. One of the things I do in my own practice on that front, though, is whenever I have a one on one conversation, I, I will say, look, this is anything you say will be kept in confidence and I will not attribute it to you. Right. So that people feel if they think it could be controversial or something like that, I make very clear that I'm not going to make any individual attributions for those expressions of concern. Um, but uh, I take your point that, you know, that it could still uh, it could still have that dynamic of psychological safety within it. Yeah, you know, one thing um, and that kind of a little bit moves away from this point. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting that I didn't see in any of the studies was um, the possibility of generational differences in voice and sounds behavior. So in in a previous episode, we talked about managing Gen Z employees and we talked about some of the with the caveat of the difficulty of, of, you know, segregating between different generations and how it's kind of a very simplified proxy to much more subtle differences between different people. Um, all that notwithstanding, um, we talked about some of the characteristics of Gen, Gen Z employees and how they differ compared, differ, differ compared to previous generations. What, what, do you have a, uh, an intuition as to what might be the differences between Gen Z and, and previous generations in terms of voice and silence behaviors? Yeah, I think you're going to see a lot more voice and a lot less silence in Gen Z in, in, in some positive ways and in some maybe not so positive ways. One of the things I have observed is that sometimes Gen Z has no sense of what is called the escalation ladder, right? When you have a problem, in most organizations, there's a process for addressing it, and it involves escalation where you go, you know, first you go to, you know, if, if a student has a problem with an instructor, go talk to the instructor. If it doesn't get resolved, then you can go to a department chair or a program director. If it still doesn't get resolved, maybe you go to the dean. If it still doesn't get resolved, then you go to a committee, that sort of thing. So there's a process. One of the things I have observed is that Gen Z immediately goes to DEFCON 4, right? Where like they send an email to the president of the university. And it's like, that's not the way to do this, right? <laughs> that is not the process to follow. Um, and so I, I I mean, maybe it will be a positive thing, but sometimes you, you have uh, this sort of sense of uh, jumping uh, right to the, the highest level uh, in expression of voice. <laughs> so that's interesting. So you're saying more voice, less silence. My intuition was actually different. Interesting. My, yeah, I, I, I thought more silence and less voice. Although I, I do take your point about, you know, jumping straight to the, going straight to the CEO without bothering to speak with anybody else first. The whole idea of, you know, deplatforming other people or calling mm -hmm. people out for saying something that's, you know, one iota outside of the um, whatever the mainstream happens to be on uh, Tuesday mm -hmm. afternoon because it might change by Tuesday evening. Sure. My, my sense is, is that people are much happier to um, criticize, call out, and in, in very aggressive ways other people for expressing certain opinions which they don't like or which don't correlate with their own opinions about whatever the, the issue is. Yeah, yeah, thereby reducing psychological safety. This is interesting. So we've posited two contradictory hypotheses here. That's uh, That should make for uh, a good research opportunity. 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, good discussion. Um, you want to move to our favorite things? Yes. Let's talk about our favorite things. Again, my idea, Sean, talking about our favorite sports. Nice. Um, do you, do you, do you, what, what, I can guess what your favorite sport is. Yeah, right. Mine, similar to when we talked about favorite drinks and I jumped right to bourbon, it's going to be like not super surprising. Uh, but I'm a big sports fan. So I love, I love most sports, right? Like I watch, I watch a lot of sports, but mine uh, is, is one that I played uh, in my youth. Um, and it's American football and I'm a total, uh, college football in particular. I, I like professional football, the NFL, but, um, I, I could, I, my old line is I could watch college football from noon on Saturday until whenever the West coast games. end, uh, if, if I wouldn't feel like a waste of uh, oxygen for doing so. And uh, this is something I wor- okay. worry about. You say you played football in your youth. You you play college football, yes. which is yeah. pretty bad. So let's just, you know, don't be that self-effacing. Where did you play? Uh, so this is where uh, anyone listening would face uh, me. So I played uh, in high school and then at Harvard as an undergrad. And Harvard's, uh, people will joke, yeah, like Ivy League football is not real football. But uh, uh that's not a valid joke. Like the Ivy League has sent several people and Harvard in particular has sent several people to the NFL in the last few years. Um, so, uh, so did anybody you played with ended up in the, end up in the NFL? Uh, there was a guy who was two years behind me by the name of Matt Burke, who was a, a time pro bowler, six time pro bowler. Pro bowl is like the all-star team for the NFL. So uh, had something like 11 years in the NFL uh, and and multi-time Pro Bowler, so a, a, a really awesome and impressive career. Uh, so we didn't we were in the same position, so we didn't play directly together. But you know, he was just a couple years behind me. What was your position? Uh, I was an offensive tackle. Uh, that's on the offensive line, one of the heavy guys on the offense. So I, I I'll send you I'll send you a diagram sometime. <laughs> <laughs> would you stand in the middle of the of the field or on the on the edges of it? Uh, we would be in the middle of the field. The tackle is on the so uh the I mean you've seen football, right? I'm sure you don't watch it regularly, but you've seen it. Uh and so you have the two lines, the offensive and the defensive lines are right in the center of the action and uh the the tackles are on the outside of that inside, so to speak. Right. Yeah. So um, I, I think football is a, a American football, I should say, because it's not proper football that that's actually played with one's foot. Yes, I understand. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I've commented before that it's really difficult to watch it on TV because it's like 30 seconds of game and then five minutes of ads and, and so forth. Yeah. So it's a bit challenging for uh, maybe a, a non-American observer. And um, I actually went to a football, um, so we have a mutual friend, Nick, and I went to visit him in um, Athens, Georgia. That's the, um, where the University of Georgia is, and they have a big football team over there, the Bulldogs, I think they're called. Yeah, I mean, right? they're the national champions. They're the reigning national champions and the number one rated team in the country right now. He has since moved to Notre Dame, which also has a bit of a football reputation. <laughs> 
Um, anyway, it was it was summer. It was incredibly hot and humid in, in Georgia. So I think I, I, I probably left, and, and we parked really far away because there was no parking. So we had to walk, and it was with another mutual friend of ours, with Nikhil. Yeah. Uh, we all did our PhDs together. And so we probably walked for like half an hour to get to the stadium from the car. And I think I must have lasted for 15 minutes. <laughs> it was getting too much and too hot for me. So I, I left the stadium and went to a bar and um, sat in the aircon and watched the, the game on TV and drank, I don't know what I drank, something cold. Nice. I also joined Nick and Nikhil for a game down in down in Athens, and it was awesome. It was a game against Tennessee, which is another SEC rival, so it was pretty great. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm addicted to it. I worry about this though because I fear that American football is going to sort of fade away, like uh, like boxing has in certain regards because of concussions and things like that. So I do worry about the future of the sport. Just just because of my own addiction to it. Interesting. Um, this relates to my favorite sport, which is um, MMA. And uh, I think anybody who knows me would, would say that I'm not a violent person <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. By any stretch? MMA, I don't know. Oh, come on. <laughs> MMA stands for uh, Mixed Martial Arts. Um, so it's basically a, a couple of guys or, or women um, or closed up in a cage and um, they go at it uh, using whatever discipline uh, that they have at their disposal. So um, it's been around for, I don't know, about 25, 30, no, I guess 30 years now, the UFC, which is the main organization um, that promotes MMA fights, has been around for about 30 years now. And I actually remember watching earlier, or really early um, UFC fights mm -hmm. back I was, I was introduced to this when I was a PhD student in, in Cleveland. And <laughs> back in the day, it was very loosely regulated. So you could wear whatever you wanted. You didn't have to wear any protective gear or, you know, mouthpiece or anything. And you could do basically anything to the other person, including like kicking somebody in the nuts and kicking out their teeth and stuff like that. So this is why you love the sport so much, is what you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> So um, at first it was more violent, violent and definitely less regulated than it is today. But um, yeah, I think I think you have to go through a, some process of desensitization to be able to enjoy and appreciate it. Yeah, I actually have a hard time with it. Still, because of the violence, like it can be like when a guy, one guy grounds, gets another guy on the ground and just starts wailing on him. It's like, oh, good lord! Yeah, I. I, maybe I've gotten soft in my old age. By the way, I, I think it's more than 30 years because I remember one of my roommates in college, and I graduated 32 years ago. Uh, one of my roommates in college used to get, used to, it was a VCR tape, used to get the UFC fights because it was only once a year at the time. And they would get the UFC, I said UCF, not University of Central Florida, the UFC, uh, whatever, the Octagon uh, uh, events on VHS tape and bring them in and we would all watch them. So UFC 1 um, happened on the 12th of November 1993. Yeah. So almost to the day 30 years ago. Okay. 30 years. Right. So I guess, ago. yeah, I guess I'm I'm overestimating myself. I was thinking of high school. Yeah. Uh, I'm still, I'm still a year and a half from my 30th reunion. 
Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, I think you, you kind of need to get used to the level of violence because it's definitely violent. But I think you also need to appreciate, and that comes with time and, and watching more fights and actually understanding what people are doing, the level of skill involved in being able to do that. Um, because it's 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 immense. It's super impressive. Like these are people that can box and kick and grapple and wrestle um, and defend themselves. And they have a, you know, create well the vast majority of them crazy levels of cardio yeah because they, they, they need to do it for i don't know 15 to 25 minutes while being punched in the face and the body and the legs so i i i find the level of skill and and courage and dedication um unlike anything else i think it's more exciting and interesting and has more layers and depth than most other sports that i've seen in my life. Yeah, maybe I'll give it another try. I just think I've gotten soft in my old age. Yeah, yeah. you are old. Yeah, it's true. All right. Good good times. Um okay Sean. Let's wrap it up and uh let's do it again soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.